This is Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks, and welcome to my podcast series, The Voice of Leadership. This is Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks, your host for The Voice of Leadership and Dr. Karen Speaks Leadership. And in this season, when we are celebrating fathers in the family, I thought it would be interesting to take a look at executive leaders as workplace fathers. So we'll talk about that today, and we'll be using as a primary example, God the Father himself and how he's modeled what might be useful for executives to practice in the workplace. If we look around in our society and the world at large, we find that in many places in the Western world especially, men are getting lost and many are being raised in families without fathers. Sometimes the fathers are absentee in that they don't live in the home, that they have maybe a marginal commitment or involvement with their children. And in other cases, the men are totally gone and non-existent in their children's lives. So we see that many men are just not also showing up as leaders in the home or even in some of our churches today. It's been all too easy to abdicate the leadership responsibility. And what I've noticed is that men are often happiest and most effective when they have something significant to do, some purpose that does involve leadership. For the many mothers out there who are single parents and raising your children without the father, just know you have an important role in raising your male and female children. And it's not easy to do that by yourself. And at the same time, we also know that it's men who actually raise and grow men. It's the man's job to prepare men for the next generation of responsibilities. So if you are a male executive in the workplace, today I'm talking specifically to you about how you can make a difference, first of all, for the men in your organization and also for the women in your organization. Fathers are important for both men and women. And many of the same instructions and suggestions that I will share today, they apply to both men and women equally. One of the things I remember from my own upbringing and childhood are many great memories concerning my father and his leadership and my relationship with him. We were very, very close as I was growing up. And it was my father who was the one that gave me a sense of confidence in my ability. When my mother would get worried or when she would be anxious, my father is the one to say, oh, Karen can do that. She can do anything. Not that I really could truly do anything. However, in his mind, he felt that if I put my mind to it, I probably could do pretty much anything that I chose to do. So even hard things 
my father had a sense that I would find a way. I would scale that wall. I would get to the mountaintop or whatever it is that I was working on or wanting to accomplish. So when we think about this, fathers are the ones who say, go for it. They're the ones who might, you know, do the more dangerous things, if you will, with their children, whereas the mothers are often a little bit more protective and often a bit more nurturing in that sense and concerned more about safety issues than fathers often are. Later on in my life, I was the one actually leading my father on adventures and things that he found frightening, such as horseback riding in the bottom of the Grand Canyon or taking helicopter rides and things of that sort, or walking across the Royal Gorge here in Colorado on the footbridge, a wooden footbridge, and you could feel the bridge move and you could see through the slats all the way down to hundreds and hundreds of feet below to the raging river and so on. So some of that paid off and that I ended up being adventurous and then I let him get a little taste of it as well. So as executive leaders in the workplace, men, you also can be the good guys, the safe guys, so that even the women in your organization can know that there are men still around and still available who value joint leadership opportunities, who understand the diverse giftings of all of their people in the workplace, and they know how to partner rather than to just lord it over someone. Executive leaders, you have a leadership role, an opportunity for both men and women in the workplace. Executive leaders, I encourage you to think about your role as a godly workplace father. And I'm going to cover some options and pictures about what that might look like. So number one, we know that fathers, including God the Father, gives wise direction and guidance. If we think back to Adam in the Garden of Eden, God created man first. He created Adam in the Garden first. And Adam had the opportunity to name all the animals and whatever he named them, that's what they were called. He was told to tend and to keep the garden. And once Eve was created from his side and created out of dust to be with him as his helpmeet, once God provided that for him from his own side, his own rib, then God said to both of them to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it, and to eat of all the trees in the garden, except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So these were very precise, very specific directions, specific guidance that God gave to Adam and Eve in the garden. Later, Abraham was called by God to leave the land of his upbringing, and he was told to go where God would lead him. 
And when you think about that, that probably was a little bit scary and frightening because he had to rely on God's guidance and direction minute by minute and day by day in his life. He did not have the whole plan in front of him or even mapped out in advance. And later, when Abraham was to find a wife for his son Isaac, he made sure to commission his servant and to tell his servant not to find a wife for his son amongst the Canaanites, but to go back to his family and to his people and the servant. When he went back to Abraham's homeland, he prayed to God and asked God to give him direction and guidance on finding Isaac a wife. And he said the girl who would offer to give him a drink of water if he asked, and then on her own agree and offer to water his camels, that she indeed would be the one. So God was even giving guidance and direction there, selecting the right woman for Isaac, and it all worked out, and the servant was able to bring Rebecca back to Isaac, and they were married. We find in the life of King David, he had so much guidance from God on many fronts, and especially about battles and strategies for battles. God would say whether to go up and even fight a battle, and if he was going to fight the battle, how to even engage the enemy, what approach to use in fighting the battle. And then we know that King Solomon, David's son, when he came to the throne, at the very beginning, he asked God for wisdom and guidance on how to lead God's people. He basically said, I'm young, I don't know what I'm doing. And God, this is a great undertaking. And these people are vast, so many of them. He knew he needed God's help in knowing the wisdom to lead the people. And we find that account in Second Chronicles, the first chapter. So we find that the whole Bible, if we really think about it, both the first covenant and the second covenant, is really filled with wise counsel, guidance, and instruction from God. And we also find that God, in giving his wisdom and his instruction, is exceedingly abundant in his giving. He does far more, much more than we even ask or think about as Ephesians 3 and 20 would tell us. So we find that God is filling you as a leader daily to lead his people well in the workplace. And your people at work seek wisdom and guidance the wisdom and guidance that you've gained from years and years of business experience, you know a lot. You've walked many miles in your shoes. And in addition, if you are a man of God, you have learned a lot from walking with God as well. So you have far more to give than the man who just has only a secular perspective. So the second thing I would say, in addition to providing this godly wisdom, guidance, and instruction, would be to teach, develop, mentor, model, 
and grow people in the workplace. In Deuteronomy 6, God commissions parents and especially fathers. He tells the fathers to teach his ways to their sons and to their grandsons. He tells them to teach their children diligently, to talk with them when they sit down, when they walk along the way, when they lie down, when they rise up, and to bind God's words as a sign on their head, between their eyes, on the doorposts of the house, and on the gates. When I hear this, I'm thinking of living life together in the formal ways and also in the informal ways, so that these fathers are having regular interactions and conversations with their children. And as they're walking along the way, they're modeling how to lead. They're teaching it also. They're showing it in everything that they do. They're demonstrating what they would like the children to learn. So in the workplace, think about how you can model, how you can develop your people by what you share with them, what you teach them, what you model in front of them so that they can grow. What can you demonstrate, for example, in meetings at work? What might you illustrate through some written expressions of values and principles, and of course, modeling living out those values and principles, modeling what it looks like to problem solve in a way that treats employees and customers in an appropriate and loving manner, and that treats them according to the values and principles you espouse. So as the executive leader, you set the tone for what it will look like in the workplace and how things are done in your workplace. And what we do know is that when it comes down to these sorts of matters, more is caught than is actually taught. And what I'm thinking about years and years ago on television, there used to be a commercial where you see a father and a son walking together through a tree-lined area, almost like a little forest walk, and their backs are to the screen. They're walking together, and the father is smoking a cigarette. The son is looking up to the father, the little son, and in words at the bottom of the screen, it says, like father, like son. And the implication is this little boy is watching his father smoke a cigarette and at some time in his life to be like his father who he so admires, this little boy will probably start smoking cigarettes as well. I can really relate to that story personally because when I was a child, my father actually did smoke cigarettes and we used to love to watch him blow what we called the smoke rings. That was fun and that was exciting to us. And of course, as children, we weren't smoking cigarettes. However, they did have candy cigarettes in the store and we used to get those and pretend that we were smoking. And it wasn't until the Surgeon General put out 
a message linking smoking with cancer and in particular lung cancer that everybody woke up that maybe this was not such a great idea. And I remember when Nat King Cole died and he died of cancer and complications of smoking and then a neighbor down the street also died from cancer and the complications of smoking. And this link between cancer and smoking was so strong, my father decided that he would quit smoking. And he quit smoking and never smoked again. That was also modeling. That was also an example. And to this day, none of his four children smoke cigarettes. So modeling is important. How you live your life with and in front of your children makes a difference. And I would say as an executive, what you do in the workplace, people are looking up to you and they will emulate what you do when you are the senior leader. So be careful about the actions you engage in in the workplace to make sure that they are healthy and wholesome and appropriate leadership strategies. The third item I would share is that fathers and executive leaders provide challenge as development. Fathers are the ones who often teach their children to do hard things, and they have those hard expectations. And I'm thinking about an occasion in Abraham's life when God was really testing his faith and testing his character. And he told Abraham to go up to a certain place and to sacrifice his beloved son, his only son that he got in his old age by his wife, Sarah. This was the son of promise for whom he was promised many generations of children. And yet God is saying, go up to this mountain, take this knife, and I want you to put him on the altar and sacrifice him. That took a lot of faith for Abraham to engage in this act and to show his faith in God, his willingness to do whatever God said, and to be willing to give up the one person he loved so dearly. He would not let that stand in the way of his relationship with God himself. So he was tested and he passed the test in terms of having faith in God. I'm also thinking about David who was tested, and he was tested in terms of character. David knew that he would be the next king of Israel. God told him that, and he had already been anointed for the position. However, he was not in the role, and it would be many, many years before he would assume the role of king. And in the meantime, Saul was king, and Saul was eagerly hunting him down at every turn, trying to kill him. And there was an occasion when David had the opportunity to kill Saul. When he found Saul in a cave, entering a cave, and Saul was not aware that David and his men were already in that cave. And in the compromising position that Saul was in, David easily could have killed him. However, he chose not to do that. He knew that if God had promised him to be the king, he did not have to commit sin and evil in order to make it happen. And similarly, in David's life, at another time when he was asking some provisions 
from the husband of Abigail. And Abigail's husband was an evil man who was not generous or uh, had a loving heart at all. And he denied the provisions which David actually requested of him. And David's request was appropriate and honorable given how David's men had helped with this man's vineyards, crops, and herdsmen, and so on. And Abigail is the one who came and spoke to David. And when David was planning to go down there and to kill her husband and all the other men in the household, and God spared these men's lives because of this conversation that Abigail had. And she said, you know, you're going to be king one day. You don't want this murder on your hands. God will see you through to the next step. So David did not kill her family at that time or ever, actually. We also find that in providing challenge, you also want to provide encouragement, necessary encouragement to step up into the challenge. So for this, I'm thinking about Gideon and this account is recorded in the book of Judges, chapters 6 through 8. And Gideon was called by God to tear down the idols that were in the land. God's people had gone astray, and he was to take an army and to attack the Midianites, who were the enemies of Israel at the time. When Gideon started out, he had a huge army. And God said, nope, too many men. I want you to do this battle with 300 men. Now, that really was not in earthly terms, human terms, enough men to fight the battle. However, God knew that he was the one who was going to give it the victory. He only needed 300 men, or maybe not that many. He just wanted them to know they didn't do it with their own strength, might, and power. So to encourage Gideon along the way, when God first called him out, he referred to him as a mighty man of valor. And of course, Gideon didn't see himself that way at all. And then when Gideon was getting concerned about this battle and this small army, he sent Gideon over to the enemy's camp to hear what they were talking about. And one man was sharing with another man about a dream that he had. And in this dream, this loaf of barley bread came tumbling down into the Midianite camp. And they interpreted that as meaning that Israel was going to come down there and win a battle against them. So Gideon was able to return back to his own camp, emboldened, having heard that they said this dream was nothing but the sword of Gideon. And as God was encouraging Gideon, he told him, the Lord is with you. And many times God would say to people who were facing daunting circumstances, fear not, I'm with you. So when you think about your workplace, there are hard tasks in your workplace. There are difficult challenges. There are roles that are not easy that you're asking people to step up to, and you want them to be successful. What are the names you can call out about them and who they are and how they are ready and equipped for this role and for this task. And then for you to be able to say that you are with them in the workplace. You will be their top cover. You will be their backup. They're not alone. 
You're there to answer any questions. We think about Gideon. He asked many questions on the front end, such as, God, if you're with us and you're for us and you delivered us out of Egypt, how come we're having all this trouble now? Well, there are questions like that that your people may want to ask you as well. And to be available, the more difficult the task, the more there may be questions, the more support that may be required, and the more encouragement and the more you might need to call out the good and the strength in your people. And that really gets into number four, which is inspire and reinforce confidence. In addition to what I'm saying about promising that you'll be with them and there with them and provide resources that they need, and you're calling them by this new name of valor, remind them also, your people, of past victories. Remind them of their accomplishments and what they've already done. That's an important part of inspiring and reinforcing confidence. Sometimes people have the battle victories, yet they don't sit down and think about what that means. They don't think about the fact that they've got this track record already and that that is something to be aware of. The fifth item I'll mention is what I'll call accountability and responsibility. So in Genesis, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God came down walking through the garden and he called Adam and he says, where are you? And I'm sure that Adam didn't want to see God that day because he knew that he had violated God's command and that he ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God did not allow any excuses, even though Adam tried to blame Eve because she's the one who gave him the food and so on. God meted out a consequence for everybody in this story. So when we think about accountability and responsibility, their jobs that you give people to do in the workplace, that they have to do in the workplace, and you want them to be responsible for completing and finishing those jobs and being accountable for what happens in those tasks that they've been assigned. And we find that so often the nation of Israel was disciplined multiple times and God often would send their enemies to mete out the discipline along the way. He also sent prophets to warn them about what was happening, what was coming, if they didn't straighten up. And eventually, he would send judges or other rulers to deliver them from the enemy's hands. So this kind of brings me to a sixth point, which is about the discipline and the chastening and the correction of God. And we know that God chastens and corrects those who he loves and those he considers as sons. And in the workplace, you want to have consequences for people who don't meet the mark. If they're giving you shoddy work, they don't meet the standards, they have to redo it until they get it right. And if you accept inferior work, that's what you're going to get is inferior work. I would like to read just a little bit of Hebrews 12, where we hear this picture of God's chastening. And this is Hebrews the 12th chapter, starting with about verse 5, and it says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. 
My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyous for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So as a workplace father, you too will have to let people know when they have not measured up to their responsibilities and their accountabilities, and you will have to chasten them, so to speak. And here's what I want to say. Everything we've been talking about up to this point, including the chastening, it's all done from a heart of love and from the rubric of love. If you don't have love while you're doing it, it's not going to land in the right way or the right place. And then this brings me to number seven, which is to offer rewards for work that's well done. People like to see the fruit of their labor. And here I'm thinking about the parable of the talents, which is found in Matthew, the 25th chapter, verses 14 through 30. And here was a landowner, a household owner who was leaving on a journey, and he gave some responsibilities to his servants. So to one servant, he gave five talents. This is an amount of financial resources. To another, he gave two talents. And to a third, he gave one talent. And here's the key. He gave each of them according to their ability. So if you had five talents, you had enough ability to manage five talents. If you were given one talent, you had enough ability to manage that. So you didn't give people beyond what they were able. He goes away and then he comes back to find out how have they handled these resources? How have they invested them? What have they done with them in his absence? And when he gets back, he finds that the man with the five talents has gained five more. The one with the two talents has gained two more. The one with the one talent said, well, I knew you were a hard man and you harvest where you don't reap. And so I hid this talent and I buried it. And the landowner was listening to all of these stories. And to the person with the one talent who buried the talent and did not get a return on the investment, he said, well, if you knew I was such a harsh man and so on, why didn't you at least put my money in the bank so that it could get interest and I would have that when I came back? So he kicked him out and basically said, you know, you are worthless servant. 
is in essence what he referred to him as a worth of servant. And he cast him into the outer darkness, a place where there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now to the other two who had doubled what he gave them, in verses 21 and 23, he says the same thing to them. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. So when you think about your workplace, you want to reward those who do well. Those who are providing a great service in the workplace and those who are utilizing the principles that are in your workplace to provide a return on investment for the business? Oh, yes, you definitely want to acknowledge them and you want to reward them and you want to call out what it is that they're doing. And keep in mind that God is the role model here. In everything that we've been talking about, God is the one who gives more than he asks And he's given us everything that we need for life and godliness. His love exceeds all. And you want to be known for the kind of love that provides for people in your workplace too. And that calls the men and women in your workplace to their best selves. And you definitely want to be in this position where Ephesians 6, 4 says, Fathers provoke not your children to wrath. Rather, on the other hand, you want to bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. So everything, again, is under the umbrella of love, and it's for the benefit of those who are working in the workplace with you. So as an executive leader, you have tremendous responsibility for cascading this love throughout your organization and helping people to show up at their best and as their best. So if I review these briefly, seven items to pay attention to. Number one, provide wise direction and guidance to your people at work. Number two, teach, develop, mentor, model, and grow skills in the people at work. Number three, provide challenge as part of that development that you're giving them. These are leadership opportunities, these challenges, hard things, hard things that will test their character, test their resolve, and test what they've learned and what they know. You want them to succeed at hard things. And as they're doing that, number four, you want to inspire and reinforce their confidence, call out the good in them, give them a victorious name as you speak to them. And number five, hold them accountable and responsible for the work that they're supposed to be doing. And if they need to redo it, let them redo it. And then you just aren't going to accept any kind of work. You are creating a workplace of excellence. And then six would be the discipline and the chastening that comes when people get off track and maybe haven't done their best or what it's been expected. And then number seven, you're offering rewards for work that's well done. So you want to be a godly workplace father, if you will, an executive in the workplace that makes it better for both men and women who can learn from you. So as we close today, 
I'd like to share the verses that I referenced earlier, and this is Deuteronomy, the sixth chapter, and starting with verse four, and it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. So the call fathers in leadership is to a close, deep, intimate relationship with those who you are leading. So be a godly and good workplace father. Hi, it's Dr. Karen here. Did you know that you can mine the lessons from your own life and work experiences to inspire your teams and your people. So in my book, Lead Yourself First, The Senior Leader's Guide to Engaging Your People for Greater Performance and Impact, I share snippets of my life experiences from childhood all the way up to adulthood. I also share what I learned from these experiences, how that learning informs how I lead today, and I share some examples of how I facilitate my client success with these same principles. So I invite you also to apply the same methodology to your life with reflection questions at the end of each chapter. So when you lead yourself first, you then have a foundation for leading others. In chapter two, which is called Run Your Own Race, I share some stories from my days as an active duty army officer when my approach to running the two miles for the physical training test and also my approach for the 12 mile forced road march had to be different from what other people did. So what I would say is dare to be different. Find your own success formula. Sometimes what works for you is different from what works for others. So remember to run your own race. And remember to get your own copy of Lead Yourself First, and you'll find resources for how to run your own race. Hi, this is Dr. Karen, and I'm here today with Yos Snoop, who is the CEO and president of the Bible League. And the Bible League is a ministry that provides Bibles and instructional materials in the Word of God, as well as trains teachers in their local language and culture to share the Word of God and to disciple people. So today, Yos, tell us a little bit about the impact of the Bible League. What's going on out there? Last year, I met this uh, lady. Her name was Nimia. Uh, Nimia was born in 49. She became a Christian in 2002. And last year, we were able to invite her in one of our trainings. 
At the end of that meeting, she stood up and shared her testimony. She said, this is the first time I received a Bible for my own. And I'm equipped to share the word of God with others. I thought by myself at that point, that's why we are a Bible League. That's why God called us to be in ministry, to serve people like that and to equip them with the right materials and with the word of God. Oh, thank you so much, Yils, for sharing that story. And what I want to let everyone know is you can be a part of this movement as well. You can go to BibleLeague.org to find out more about the ministry and also to donate to the ministry. There are lots more stories like the one that Yils just shared today about lives that are changed and impacted for God through Jesus Christ. You've been listening to The Voice of Leadership with me, Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks. And I want to give a special thanks to jazz saxophonist Ron McMillan for granting us permission to use his gifted music on our show. Thanks for listening. And remember to go to my website, transleadership.com, for more strategies, insights, and leadership resources.